0: Hi, everybody, and happy Saturday. Coming up this week on the show, we have an episode in which we briefly mention pilot Bessie Coleman, who was the first African-American woman to get a pilot's license. Back in 2012, previous hosts Sarah and Dublina did an episode on her. So we are sharing that episode today, and it is also a little taste of something that will be coming up on the show in one of our new episodes this week.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And as Black History Month is drawing to a close and Women's History Month is right around the corner, we thought it would be nice to do an episode that kind of bridges the gap between the two a little bit. And it's also a great excuse to return to a subject we really love but haven't touched on since last spring's Mystery of Saint X episode, and that's aviation. Of course, this episode won't include many mysterious disappearances— or Little Prince impersonations. Gimbalina's
0: Little Prince
1: voice, <laughs> one of my favorite podcast moments. <laughs> But that doesn't mean that the life of this subject, Bessie Coleman, is any less fascinating.
0: Not at all. Coleman was the first African-American woman in the world to earn a pilot's license, and she was also the first licensed African-American pilot of either sex, according to Flight Journal. She was a contemporary of Amelia Earhart and, in fact, earned her pilot's license a year before Earhart did.
1: Of course, she managed to do this in the early 1920s during a time when most Americans, even those in the Black community, still felt that a woman's place was in the home, not in the workplace, and certainly not flying around in the sky. What's more, segregation was still a big factor, and there weren't any white flight instructors who were willing to take on Coleman as a student.
0: So we're going to be taking a look at how Coleman overcame these obstacles to pursue her dream. After all, if there weren't white flight instructors who were willing to take her on, how did she learn to fly? Because there weren't black flight instructors. No, so yeah you know, that's going to be the, the one of the mysteries we unveil. And then we're going to take a look too at why she wanted to learn to fly in the first place and how after becoming a pilot she used her position to fight for equality for others of her race.
1: But to truly understand what Coleman was up against in pursuing her dream of flying, you really have to go all the way back to her childhood. She was born Elizabeth Coleman on January 26, 1892, in Atlanta, Texas, and she was one of 13 children in a family of poor sharecroppers. Her mother, Susan Coleman, was black, and her father, George Coleman, was of mixed race, part African American and part Cherokee. Neither of Bessie's parents could read or write.
0: So in 1894, George Coleman moved his family to Waxahachie, Texas, and bought a small plot of land there to build a three-room house. So in their new town, the Colemans earned a living by picking cotton, and all the kids pitched in to to help raise money for the family. But they also went to school because their parents wanted a better life for them. Of course, schools were segregated at the time, so Bessie had to walk four miles every day to her school, which was basically just a single room that handled all eight grades that were offered. But despite those circumstances, that long trip to school and the combined nature of the classroom, Bessie's academic abilities really became clear, even at a young age.
1: She was especially good at math And she even used her skills to make sure the foreman of the fields her family worked in didn't cheat them when it was time for them to get paid. But when Bessie was somewhere in the age range of six to nine years old, sources seem to differ on the exact timing of that, her father left them. He felt that discrimination really limited his opportunities for advancement in Texas, and so he wanted to move to Indian Territory, where, as we've talked about on some previous podcasts, his Native American ancestry would have made him more of an equal citizen. But
0: Susan Coleman didn't want that life. She didn't want to be a tough pioneer family. So she stayed behind with the kids and supported the family on her own by working as a cook and a housekeeper for a white family. Which was also tough. Of course. I mean, as you would expect it to be. But meanwhile, Bessie had to take on the housekeeping duties with her mother away working most of the day in her own household and take care of her younger sisters while her mother was away. And often she had to miss school. To, to do all this, which must have been hard for such a bright student.
1: She still had really big dreams, though, and Bessie's mother encouraged that. According to an article in Flight Journal by Dennis Mrazzi, Bessie's mom was known to say, if you stay a mule, you'll never win the race. And she used to have her kids copy the manners of the white family that she worked for. And she talked to them about the great achievements of African-Americans like Booker T. Washington and Harriet Tubman. And it must have made an impression because when Bessie completed all eight grades in her one-room schoolhouse, and that was all that they offered because they just expected, okay, you're going to work. Exactly. You're going to go work in the fields now. She graduated in 1910. And at that point, she knew that she wanted more after that. She wanted to become something else so she, had saved up some money by working as a laundress this whole time.
0: And and that year, at the age of 18, she used the savings to enroll in the Colored Agricultural and Normal University in Langston, Oklahoma. It's now Langston University. But she only had enough money to attend for one term. So as soon as that was up, she had to go back home, start doing laundry and cleaning again to save up some more money. So at that point, it seemed like she wasn't quite sure what her next move was. Going to be. I mean, obviously, that's a, a difficult scenario to maintain, working, saving money, then going for for a term. It all changed though when her older brother Walter invited her to come and live with him in Chicago, and she still had to save up for a couple years to make that move possible. But at the age of twenty three, Bessie headed up north,
1: and Chicago was just a different world. They had an entire area of the city, the South Side, which was settled by mostly blacks, and there were just more job opportunities than there were back in Waxahachie. So Bessie enrolled in a beauty school, and she ended up becoming a manicurist at the White Sox Barbershop. A few years after she moved up to Chicago, her mom and sisters moved up there too, while her brothers, Walter and John, went off to France to fight in World War I. By this time, African-Americans were allowed to serve in the military in segregated units. Kind of an update from our Massachusetts
0: 54th episode. Exactly. So nobody seems to know exactly when Bessie became interested in flying. It might have been as far back as Waxahachie, and airplanes were, of course, invented in 1902, probably made— a pretty big impression on most children around then. But it might have also had something to do with the use of airplane technology in World War I and the advancements that were being made in their technology, their use at the time. And probably she had an interest in World War I with her brothers away fighting. It definitely seemed like airplanes were the wave of the future and, and she took an interest at some point or another.
1: But regardless of how she got interested, by the end of the war, flying had become Bessie's goal. Most sources actually relate a story about how her older brother, John, who had just come home from the war, visited her in the barbershop one day and kind of started taunting her, sort of bragging about the women he'd met in France, saying that they were so beautiful and intelligent and some of them could even fly planes. And he regaled her with these stories of female pilots. Bessie supposedly responded, That's it. You just called it for me. So that could have been the moment when she knew for sure she wanted to be a pilot, or maybe she just knew that France was an option for her there.
0: Probably not the reaction her brother was expecting from his teasing. But either way, it was probably right around that time that she started to apply to American flight schools, except that she kept on getting rejected from them. Some of the schools would tell her they thought women shouldn't be flying at all because it was too risky. But race very well might have had something to do with it, too. There were no black flight instructors. There were no black flight schools at the time. But Bessie did not quit. She did not give up on this on this dream. She had told one of her barbershop patrons, Robert Abbott, about her dream to fly and the problem she was having making it a reality. And Abbott was a pretty good guy to, to tell your problems to. He was pretty influential. He was the editor of a black weekly newspaper called the Chicago Defender. I think that's popped up in, in several episodes we've covered. Um, but one of his biggest goals, was to, quote, uplift the race. And according to Jacqueline McLean's profile of Bessie in Women with Wings, Abbott wanted to help her achieve her goals because he thought it would help prove what African-Americans could accomplish. I mean, if you're interested in uplifting the race what better way than to sponsor a pilot who can literally fly up and away
1: yeah because people can't say you can't do something if you actually show it to and them it's them. just that a powerful it's,
0: it's a powerful metaphor t- for too for what he was trying to do flying
1: yes taking flight <laughs> So when Bessie passed on to Abbott what her brother had told her about France, he, of course, encouraged her to pursue flight school there. He was basically like, well, if no one in America will take you, you got to go somewhere else. So at about age 27, 28, Bessie used her savings to start taking French classes so she could learn the language. She also applied for a passport and picked up an extra job at a restaurant just to save up some more money for school. And after applying to a few French flight schools, she was finally accepted to the Cadron Brothers School of Aviation in France.
0: So Abbott did prove to be a a benefactor true to his word. He helped Bessie secure funds for school so she could cover tuition. And in late 1920, she headed off to France to start a 10-month flight course. So for about the first seven months of her training, Bessie simply took lessons. She learned to fly in a French Newport Type 82 biplane. And according to the McLean's profile we mentioned, during the lessons, a teacher would just sit in the front seat working all the controls. And a student pilot like Bessie would have to sit in the back seat, and you couldn't necessarily see the instructor from there or even hear the instructor because, of course, the engine was roaring. So students just learned to fly by feeling the movements of the controls,
1: mimicking the instructor's motions, just really kind of picking it up along the way. Then on June fifteenth, 1921, at age 29, Bessie earned her license from the Fédération Aéronautique Internationale. As we mentioned earlier, she was the first black woman in the world to earn a pilot's license. And the FAI license in particular was so highly regarded, it was accepted by every country in the world. So this is the license that the you wanted best anyway. The the best. Coleman finished up her program and returned home to the States that September, where she was met by reporters from both black and white newspapers who wanted to interview her. So pretty famous at this point. And while in New York, she was invited to see a Broadway musical with an all-black cast called Shuffle Along. She was the guest of honor there, and the performers gave her a silver cup at in intermission. And she
0: also started to form some new, pretty big dreams about advancing the African-American cause. I mean, now that she had achieved this this seemingly insurmountable dream of of flying, she had new goals. And she started to think about opening an aviation school for Black people. And according to McLean's profile, she said in an interview with the Chicago Defender, quote, We must have aviators if we are to keep up with the times. I shall never be satisfied until we have men of the race who can fly. Do you know you have never lived until you have flown?
1: But, of course, to open a school, she would need some cash, and at that moment, there really was no way for her to make it. In the 1920s, after all, there weren't any commercial airlines to work for, and although there were some pilots who were working for the Postal Service, they were pretty much all white men. I mean,
0: we've talked about that in the St. X episode, exactly what he did, working, carrying mail and, and doing that sort of thing.
1: So Bessie realized she would have to make a living as an entertainer performing in air shows, but she needed more training to do this because she didn't really learn how to do stunts during her first stint in flight school air show performers at this time usually did things like loop-the-loops and barrel rolls and having people parachute out of planes. So in February 1922, Bessie went right back to France. To learn
0: some tricks. So she trained there for two months and went to Germany, too, to train for 10 more weeks. And while she was there, she was filmed flying over Berlin. She returned to the United States in August 1922, and her old friend and benefactor, Robert Abbott, who was still one of her biggest supporters, Immediately scheduled an air show on Long Island that would feature her talents. And the show took place Labor Day, September 3rd, 1922, at Curtis Field. And according to Encyclopedia Britannica, this was the first public flight by an African American woman in America. But the people who she borrowed a plane from for this special occasion wouldn't allow her to do stunts. So she just kind of had to fly around. Still, though, a huge crowd of people turned out to see her and, and to see this remarkable feat of a African-American woman pilot.
1: After that, she did another exhibition at Checkerboard Field in Chicago. And there she did get to show off her acrobatic flying techniques, including loops, figure eights, and some spine-tingling dips and dives, and the audience was really thrilled by it. I mean, I think at one point I read an account where one of the moves she did was a dive that almost made it look as if the plane were going out of control, so the audience was really shocked. I mean, they thought something was going wrong, and then kind of at the last second, she pulled pulled up, up. yep, And, and she was fine, and they were all really thrilled by that. So her stunts earned her the nickname Queen Bess. Daredevil Aviatrix, and also Brave Bessie. So Abbott was the one who first started calling her Queen Bess, and that's where that came He's in. He's going to
0: promote his his investment a little bit. indeed. So Bessie was pretty famous, as you can imagine, by this point. And not long after that Chicago show with all of the exciting stunts, the African-American seminal film producing company got in touch with her about starring in a movie based on her life and at her accomplishments called Shadow and sunshine. Bessie initially agreed. She signed on. But right from the beginning, the script called for her to dress in rags and represent this poor, uneducated girl coming to the big city, which, of course, hadn't been her situation at all. She'd worked hard to accomplish what she could in Texas and, and then made her way to Chicago. She didn't like the way that the story in general, though, portrayed Black women. She thought it made people, Black people in general, look ignorant. So she quit. And quitting this project really meant she lost the support of the Black entertainment community dropping out so suddenly. And I mean, one can't help but wonder, if she had done this movie, would her name
1: be better known today? That's true. I didn't think about that. But She still needed money after this. She didn't have the support of the entertainment community, but she still needed some cash to save up for her aviation school. I mean, besides the fact that she just needed some money to live as well. And, I mean, we mentioned before her borrowing planes. She still didn't have a plane of her own. So every time she performed somewhere, she had to rely on somebody else to loan her a plane. So Bessie needed to find some gigs fast. And she thought she found a really good one in Oakland, California in early 1923. She made a deal with the Coast Tire and Rubber Company that was based there, and they offered to buy her a plane if she would agree to drop ads for them from a plane during an air show. And the show took place February 4th, 1923, but it didn't exactly go as planned. It seemed like it was off to a good start. Bessie was, for the first time, flying her own plane, which was a Curtis JN4, better known as a Jenny. It was a used plane, though. She couldn't afford a brand-new plane, so it was left leftover from World War I and wasn't in the best condition. Soon after she took off that day, the plane's motor stalled, and it fell 300 feet and crashed. Bessie was okay, but she was really badly injured. She had a broken leg, fractured ribs, and internal injuries. But what probably surprises me the most about this whole story is that rather than just being shocked and concerned, the audience, according to McLean's profile, was really angry that they hadn't gotten the show that they came to see and they asked for their money back.
0: That is pretty surprising. I mean, you would think, okay, show's over and I'm worried the pilot didn't even make it. Or
1: at least just horror, you know, and I don't know. Yeah, Concerned for another individual. Still hoping
0: for some barrel rolls and, and seeing all the tricks that you paid for. But with a long road to recovery ahead of her and, of course, her plane demolished, not to mention no funds anymore, Bessie had to go home to Chicago to recoup. Again, though, she didn't let that setback, I mean, breaking her leg, keep her down. She told her friends, tell
1: them that as soon as I can walk, I'm going to fly. About a year later, she made good on that. She was fully recovered, and she planned a tour of lectures and air shows across Texas, which took her to Houston, San Antonio, Dallas, and her old hometown of Waxahachie. And the tour was a big success, even though Bessie drew some pretty serious lines in the sand along the way. For example, right before performing in Waxahachie, she learned that Black audience members were required to use a separate entrance to the grounds from their white counterparts. So Bessie refused to fly unless everyone got to use the same entrance.
0: So this was taking a really big risk on her part because she needed the money, she needed that gig. But surprisingly, the event organizers complied with her request cuz after all if the show did not take place, they weren't going to make any money off of it either. In a way, again it reminds me of Satchel Paige. I think mm-hmm. everything reminds me of Satchel Paige, <laughs> but his um his putting his foot down on certain issues about how events were segregated. Bessie managed to make enough money, though, off of that Texas tour to save a little cash and put another down payment on a Jenny, the plane that she had crashed in originally, hoping to to get a better version this time.
1: After a brief visit to Chicago at the end of 1925, she set off again for another tour, this time a tour of the Southeast, during which she lectured at churches and theaters and schools in both Georgia and Florida. And there was another incident at the Chamber of Commerce Flower Show in Orlando, Florida. Bessie was supposed to perform, and then she found out that the event was advertised for whites only. Again, she refused to perform unless blacks were allowed in. And again, the organizers relented. I guess when it came down to making money or standing on their questionable principles, money money went out. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So during these. Southeastern tours, Bessie also met Edwin M. Beeman, who was the heir to the Beeman chewing gum fortune. He helped her pay off the Jenny plane she'd started to buy back in Dallas, and she planned to use that plane to perform a very special trick, a parachute jump at the Negro Welfare League Field Day in Jacksonville, Florida. So she needed a partner for this. She got a white pilot mechanic named William Wills to fly the plane over from Dallas to Jacksonville. And he had to make two emergency landings along the way because the plane kept on experiencing engine problems. Again, this was not a new plane. It was the best Bessie could afford. um, And she was having to make do.
1: So Wills managed to get the plane to Jacksonville, and then he worked on the mechanical issue. By the morning of April 30th, 1926, he told Bessie that the plane was ready to fly. The air show was actually scheduled for the next day, but Bessie wanted to take the plane up to fly over the jump site and kind of get a feel for how things were going to go on the day of. Just be prepared. Be prepared. So they took off and Wills was up front since he would be flying the plane during the actual jump and Bessie was in the rear cockpit. She didn't have her seatbelt fastened because... She was only around 5 foot 3-ish inches tall, and she wouldn't be able to lean over the side of the plane and see the ground if she were strapped in. So it would kind of defeat the purpose of going out in the first place. So they flew out and they circled the area where the jump was going to take place, and then they rose to about 3,500 feet as they started to head back. They were traveling along at that elevation at 80 miles per hour, and suddenly the plane nosedived. At about 1,000 feet, it went into a tailspin, and then at 500 feet, it completely flipped over, throwing Bessie out of the plane, and the fall killed her.
0: Wills, meanwhile, tried to right the plane, but it crashed about 1,000 feet from where Coleman landed, and he, too, was killed in the crash. And an investigation that followed revealed that the accident had been caused by a wrench that was left in the engine and had gotten all jammed up in the gear. So memorial services were held for Coleman in both Jacksonville and Orlando, and on May 5th, her remains were returned to Chicago. The Illinois Central train station was apparently packed with mourners upon her arrival, and at the service that was held for her at Pilgrim Baptist Church in Chicago, about 10,000 people showed up to pay their respects.
1: Bessie Coleman was buried in Lincoln Cemetery. At her grave, there's a five foot high monument that has a photo of her on it, all dressed up in her leather flight gear that she preferred. And she's standing in front of her plane. So you guys can Google pictures of her, too. She's actually really beautiful. And um, her outfits are cool to look at. And it's just neat to look at because I didn't know about her before I researched this podcast. So I I thought it was neat to just look at her face. It looks kind of intense in some of those photos.
0: 20s era aviation. Costumes
1: are always pretty cool-looking, indeed. But not everyone really celebrated or paid their respects to Bessie after her death. White newspapers at the time, when they recounted the crash, seemed to focus more on Will's, implying that he was teaching Bessie how to fly in the situation. Flight, isn't it? It is. And sometimes they didn't even refer to Bessie by name, calling her simply the woman. The Chicago Defender, though, of course, knew
0: what she truly was and wrote though with the crashing of the plane life ceased for Bessie Coleman, enough members of the race have been inspired by her courage to carry on in the field of aviation. Whatever is accomplished by members of the race in aviation will stand as a memorial to Miss Coleman. And this reminded me a little bit of the Tuskegee Airmen episode I think Candace and Jane did a while back because they are of course the most famous African American aviators. And I guess since neither of us had heard of of Bessie Coleman before it, it is interesting to think of her as a, as a memorial almost to to later aviators.
1: Yeah. And though a lot of people don't know her story today, I mean, compared to Amelia Earhart, who, as we mentioned, was a contemporary of hers, she has been remembered in that way that uh, the Chicago Defender mentioned. Yeah, as an inspiration, especially to others of her race and her gender. In the 1930s, black entrepreneur William J. Powell founded the Bessie Coleman Aero Clubs to encourage more African-Americans to participate in flying. And then in 1977, a group of female black pilots founded the Bessie Coleman Aviators Club. She also has a few
0: tributes back in Chicago. In 1990, a road at O'Hare Airport was renamed Bessie Coleman Drive. And in 1992, Chicago's mayor declared May 2nd Bessie Coleman Day.
1: So she still remains an inspiration for aviators and even just people who want equality. There's a great quote of hers that I wanted to share before we finish off this episode, and it's, The sky is the only place there is no prejudice. Up there, everyone is equal. Everyone is free.
0: That is a really great quote. And I think it's also interesting to consider her not just an inspiration for Uh, african-american aviators or women but just somebody who went out and accomplished things that she raised money for her french lessons and moved abroad found a school that would teach her what she was trying to learn i mean that's inspirational gender and race aside.
1: Yeah, and she went through a lot to get there. I mean, I think people tend to get discouraged sometimes when they get off track of what they want to do, like, oh, I have to work this other job. But she worked as a laundress and as a manicurist and did all kinds of random things, you know, worked in a restaurant and eventually, at the age of 30, finally got to do what she wanted to do. Where she was trying to, to go. Yeah. Yeah.